This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Why am I still here? Uh, we've been in a series now for, uh, this is the 10th Sunday, this is the last, final Sunday in uh, this 10-week series about the purposes God has for us who choose to take up the call to be disciples of Christ. Uh, most of you in this room have been in, along with what we're doing on Sunday mornings, you've been in a 10-week small group, connection group, study that parallels this one. Uh, 10 weeks ago, we started with a message about learning from Christ about what it means to be a true follower. And we looked at those stories as he began to walk around early in his ministry. He came upon some fishermen and different folks, a tax collector, and the stories are recorded. And he would just look at them and say, hey, come on and follow me. And they left whatever it was they were doing, which for those fellows was their livelihoods. They left it behind and followed Jesus. So we've been talking about what it means to truly be a follower. And it's an important topic, this knowing what is it that I'm to do and and be. As someone who is connected by faith with Jesus Christ and with his church. And one reason it's important, I believe, in 2014, we're almost to 2015 now. One reason I believe that it's really important is because it just seems to me, and maybe I'm not reading things correctly, but it just seems to me that in the last decade especially, as we, as a a culture, as a society, move farther and farther away from the Christian roots uh, that held our culture together for nearly 300 years, it, it can no longer be assumed, I don't believe, in the modern present day church, it can no longer be assumed that we who have put our faith in Jesus understand What is it he expects from me? What is it he wants out of my life? What is he looking for in me? And so we have now a new generation of believers. We call them millennials, uh, those who are under 30 right now. We have a new generation of believers who polls tell us question, a large percentage of them, believers, question the authority of the word of God. Well, I'm not really sure that, you know, you can believe all of that. They're open to redefining. Well, how do you know that? Well, they're open to redefining what God has defined when he created marriage. Let's, let's just make it something different than it's ever been ever before. Regular participation in worship, polls show us, has gone from what used to be a generation ago. And, 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 uh, and some of you who are old enough to remember you know, I've heard different people say back in the, back in the day when I was young, uh, Bob Jackson, you would tell me that back when you grew up, everybody went to church. You know, that's is that true? Yeah, everybody except they're just the most rank heathens. They all went to church, and um, but now in the last generation, church participation, regular worship on Sundays or whenever your church meets uh, has declined from what a generation ago, 75%. You you went 75% of the time if you're average, three out of four times. Now we're down to 50%, half of Sundays. Involvement in Christian community has become just one more facet of our busy lives. Ah, I'm getting... I'll get plugged into something in the church if I can find a place to plug it in in my life. If 
I can find a gap, if I can find some extra time, I'll try to do my best to plug it in. And it's become that way rather than being what it was at one time. That's, that was our most important, outside of our family, that was the most important part of our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm baffled. I think about these things, you know. What do you, what do, you do during the week, Rick? Oh, I think about these things. I think I'm baffled by how many, at how many of us who claim to be evangelical Christians in this country, if there's so many of us who say we are believers in Jesus Christ, why are we having so little impact on our culture? I don't understand that. I mean, you, you look around and you can turn on the radio and you can hear more Christian stuff now. There's more available. There's movies coming out that present Christ in the mainstream movie theaters. All, why are we having such little impact on our culture? I'm, I'm baffled by that. So I believe that taking a good look at the call Jesus gives us to be more than nominal, and that's what this series has been about, is one of the great needs in, in our church and in American evangelicalism. For me, as a, as a teaching pastor, this series, for me, I've seen it as a cry from Scripture for us as a church to collectively rise up and step up to be all that God calls us to be. We've looked on Sundays and in our groups at four purposes. There's a fifth purpose of fellowship, but we haven't talked about that in this series. We talk about that at another time, but we've talked about the four purposes that go beyond fellowship that describe what it means to be a disciple. So look at those real quickly. Let's review those rapidly. Your disciple is, disciple lives a spiritually disciplined life. Disciplined life. Uh, the disciplines would be those things of prayer. A disciple prays regularly. A disciple is in his word, her word, the, reading the Bible regularly. Is, is memorizing scripture, is giving. Those are the disciplines. A disciple number two is someone who shares the gospel with others. Sharing the gospel, by the way, is not inviting somebody to church. As important as that is, we believe you ought to invite your unchurched friends to come with you to church. When we, we try our best to, to make this a church where they'll be welcomed and, and they won't feel intimidated by anything that we do, but that's not sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is not doing good deeds so much. Sharing the gospel is saying, let me tell you who Jesus is and why he came and what he can do for you. And here's what he's done for me. Sharing the gospel is sharing our story of, of new birth that Jesus has given us and, and why we believe in him. Chances are, I would say it's almost 100%. Chances are you and I are here because why? Because somebody cared enough to tell us the best news ever. That's why you're here. Somebody did in your life. They told you that eternal life is found in faith in Jesus Christ. And whoever told you that, guess what? that person at that point in time in his or her life was following Jesus, was acting out being a disciple of Jesus Christ because they shared the gospel with you. Thirdly, we've seen that a disciple is a servant to Christ's church. You know, and finding places to serve, we don't all have the same place of ministry, do we? We don't all do the same things to serve the church. We have lots and varied gifts that the Lord has given us. He's given us different shapes, different personalities, different passions. So we all share ministry in different ways, but a disciple is called to serve Christ's body, Christ's church, however he or she can. There were some guys in here before you got in this morning 
who, because we just had one gathering last week, we had a lot more chairs in here. There's some guys in here this morning taking some of those chairs out, putting the tables back up. You know what they were doing? They were serving us. They were doing ministry. There's folks in the nursery right now changing some baby's nasty diaper. Praise God for those ladies. What are they doing? They're serving us. They're serving you parents especially. So you can be in here and you don't have to worry about, oh, what does that smell? And then then you just kind of totally lost whatever's happening in in the word this morning. So they're serving us. Somebody poured me this morning a cup of coffee, all right, And, and, and served me that way. Bands up here leading us in worship, serving. Their folks are going to, in the next gathering, going to go back and, and after we've given all of our offerings to the Lord, they're going to go back and count them and put them in a bag so they're ready to go to the bank. They're serving us. I, I don't want to do that. That's not what God's called me to do, but God's given them a passion for doing that, so they do that. So there's lots and lots of opportunities and areas of service. We're all called to minister one to another. And then a disciple we saw last Sunday and the, and the Sunday before. A disciple is a worshiper. I kind of waited to see after we sang, because some of you weren't here last Sunday for whatever reasons of holiday weekend and marathon and so forth. But we talked about it. I got up and said after we sang a song, and there was some pl- polite little applause. I said, you know what? Some of you watched a football game yesterday, whether at the stadium or on TV, and, and your team, one of the running backs or wide receiver broke loose and headed for the end zone, and you didn't give polite little applause. You jumped and screamed and hollered and did everything else, and your wife looked over and said, have you gone crazy? Yeah, you weren't crazy. You were just a fanatic. You were just excited about what was happening. I said, and we, as we read the story of what happened in heaven, we ha- cannot help but be excited as we worship God together. We're all called to worship him. And our worship is really is, is a dress rehearsal for all of eternity. The worship of the Lord, including private worship and worship as a gathered congregation is the center of all the purposes. It all revolves around worshiping Christ. So now we're, we spend almost 10 weeks learning and discussing what God's purposes are for us. What do we do now with it If we're going to really become disciples, what do I do with these things I've heard and hopefully I've learned? How do I become a real disciple of Jesus? Not just a professing believer. Let me take you through some things. Number one, you need to go beyond belief to surrender. Beyond belief to surrender. Believing requires one thing. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever does what? Believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. What must I do to be saved? The jailer asked Paul and Silas, and the answer was what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The Bible says one thing is necessary for salvation, for eternal life, and that is to put your total trust and your total faith in Christ forever. That what he did for you, he did to absolve you of your sin, to change your life, to bring you to be part of his family, part of his kingdom. And to believe means you've done that. It means you realize that whatever you might have trusted in before, and we all trust in something, whatever you might have trusted in before, whether it was religion or good works, moral living, that all any of those things were insufficient and that it's only by total trust in Christ that we can have everlasting life. And when you exercise that kind of faith, and it only takes one time, for me, I was a 10-year-old boy. When did you profess your faith in Christ, Carol? How old were you? About 20. 
right, just a couple years ago. When, and it was just that, just that, and you've been a Christian ever since then. Yeah, just that one time. You're born into a, a never-ending relationship with God. But there's more to the Christian life, what we've been seeing in this series, more to the Christian life than, than the new birth. That's the beginning. If you are in his family, he calls you and he calls me to follow him as disciples. Following demands more than simple belief. Following demands surrender. One of the lessons Jesus taught helps me understand that. And we refer to this again back in that first message in the series, but the parable of the soils. He told the story of a farmer who went out scattering seed in his field. And he said there were four different kinds of soils where the seed landed. Back then, their method of planting seed was by broadcasting it. You know, you just reach in the bag and sling it. And that's how they planted seed back in those days. It wasn't exact, but the seed got to every sort of soil that was around. Some of the soil, Jesus said, was compacted. I mean, it was hard because it was on the pathway where people walked and it packed the soil down. The seed couldn't penetrate uh, that soil. It just sat on the top. And Jesus said, before it could ever put down any roots, the birds came and ate it. It was gone. Another soil, Jesus said, was shallow soil. It was just so deep, but right underneath of it was rock. And so it would try to put, to put roots down, but the roots could only go so far, and there was no moisture, no nutrition in there because it would hit the rock. And it would wither and die, the little plant that would come up, whatever it might have been. The third soil was, for lack of a bit, can I use a southern term here? For how, many, how many southerners here this morning? God bless you, and sorry for you if you ain't. Uh, but southern term here, the, the third type of soil fell into the briar patch. Right? Thorny, thistly kind of ground. Lots of weeds and thorns around it. It fell into the briar patch, and, and the seed got into the soil, and it sent down root, but the thorny weeds all around it choked it out, deprived it of its nutrition, Blocked out the sunlight, sucked up all the water as the rain fell, and the plant dried up and died. Only the fourth soil, four soils altogether, only one Jesus called good soil. And he said that was where the roots could go down deep and where the weeds weren't plenteous and where the seed could become crop and produce, be fruitful and multiply, if you will. Jesus then explained that the first soil and the footpath, what, was, what does that represent? He said it represents the heart of someone who hears the gospel but never believes, never goes to belief, hears it but never believes. Yet in all the remaining three that are left over, he said belief is present. They believe, but here's what happened. They believe, but they hit stone. They believe, but the thorns choked it out. They believed and became productive. Three of the four. Two of those remaining three, Jesus said, never became productive. Hit the stone, surrounded by the briars. Why is that? I'm a firm believer. Uh, the older I get, I'm a firm believer that, that my life, your life, our lives are the sum of the choices we make. I'm a believer in the concept that while God is sovereign, in his sovereignty, he's allowed us to have what we call free will to make choices in our lives. We're not robots. 
We can make some decisions. We can make some choices. And we have a free will to choose right from wrong. We have a free will to listen or to turn it off. A free will to follow or drop out. And it seems what Jesus is saying in this parable is that a majority of believers, people who have everlasting life, two-thirds of the soils anyway, never choose to grow. They may attend church in a small group, but they never take the truth of the word and apply it to their lives. Paul saw this later on in the first century. Probably 20, 25 years after Jesus, Paul was writing a letter to a church in the city of Corinth. And he wrote to them these words. Look what he said. Dear brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. By spiritual people, he means people who have surrendered their lives over to the control of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't talk to you as though you were spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belong to this world. This world as opposed to what? Christ's kingdom, Christ's world, if you will. I had to talk to you as you belong to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food because you weren't ready for anything stronger. How many moms in the room? Would you raise your hand? Raise your hand if you're, you're a mother. How many of you mothers remember that experience the first time you sat down with that little one and spoon-fed that little tiny kid? You remember that? How many of you were pumped up that that was happening? Raise your hand. That was an exciting event for you, wasn't it? Of course it was. Why? Well, it, it, you know, at first it was exciting, but then when the kid began to spit stuff back at you and all, you know, you realize what a mess I've got to clean up, but you were excited because my baby is growing up. That's what that baby was supposed to do. I couldn't feed you with solid food. I had to keep feeding you milk. Why? Because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And he says to them, and this is later, he says, and you still aren't ready. He's about to get on their case. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. And he would write to the Romans and say that nature has been crucified. That nature is gone and nature is dead, but we keep digging it up. You're jealous of one another. You quarrel with one another. Doesn't that, just those two things, doesn't that prove that you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? In other words, you're not living like Christ followers right now. And someone says, and I've heard people read that and say, well, obviously these are people who claim to be saved, but they're living like they're not saved. So therefore they probably really never got saved. And I would say, if that's what you think, you need to read a little bit more carefully because Paul starts off by calling them what? Brothers and sisters. Paul acknowledged you folks are Christians. The issue he said in verse three was control. Whoever, whatever has control of me has been given that control, listen, by me. Can I say that again? Whoever or whatever, my insecurities, whatever they might be, my addictions, my lusts, my habits, whatever, whoever has control of me has been given that control by me. That puts a lot of responsibility on who? On me to be surrendered. It's a choice that we have to mature, to stagnate. The writer of the Hebrews saw this playing out among Jewish believers. 
Again, they're Christians. And he's explaining some pretty deep theology to them. If you read the book of Hebrews, it's, I mean, it's a heavy-duty book. He's explaining some pretty deep theology to them, but he knew as he's writing this, you know, I know some of y'all are just not going to get this. And here's what he wrote, Hebrews chapter 5. He said, we have a great deal to say about this. And it's difficult to explain. Some of you are not getting it. Why? Because you've become slow to understand. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, by now you ought to be teaching the same stuff to one another. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God's revelation. We have to go over the basics again and again with you because you never quite get it. You become slow to understand. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. He's, He's chosen not to grow up. Now, if you're a brand new baby Christian, I mean, you've just become a Christian within the last weeks or months, I would even say a year, you qualify as a baby, and that's okay, because we all start out as babies. But eventually, we've got to learn how to pick up the spoon. And then we go from the spoon, and when it really gets fun, we grab the fork and the knife, you know? And we begin to dig down and eat the meat of God's word. He said, but some of you can't, because you're still infants, but solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Did you get what he said here? He said, some of you Hebrew Christians, you've been believers for a long time. How long had Jews been Christians? Uh, Ever since Jesus was on the earth. Some of you have been saved for a long time, he was saying to them, and so long that by now you ought to be teaching the word, but you're not ready for that because you are immature. You've never grown from infancy. And his implication to them is this. Hey, it doesn't have to be that way. You can grow up. You ought to. Next point is this. Make the choice to take the next step. Nothing will change in your life. Hear me now. Nothing will change in your life. Well, how important is my life to the rest of the church? Hello, we are simply a sum of total of all of us as individuals. Paul said, when one of us suffers, all of us suffers. All of us suffer. Nothing will change in your life and and collectively nothing changes in the church until you say it's going to change and you mean it. Some some of you are going to understand exactly where I'm going here with this next little illustration, but I grew up in churches that had what they called revival once or twice a year. And that meant, revival meant that an evangelist was coming in to preach in in some special services that began on Sunday and went through maybe Friday night back in those days. Any more churches have cut the revival time down from Sunday to Wednesday, those that do that kind of thing. And this preacher would come in and he would preach and the assumption is that God would use that week of nightly preaching and singing to re-energize the church, to call sinners to repentance, to turn backsliders around. And, and those nights he would end the sermon and the evangelists would give what we called an invitation and a song was sung and people were exhorted to come forward 
whether it was to tr- put your faith and trust in Christ, but if it was for revival, you come forward to what we use this term to rededicate yourself to Christ. I'm not going to ask you how many of you went forward in those services and rededicated yourselves to Christ, but I, I, I did. And, and not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but every time the next revival came around, the following fall, the following spring, whatever it was, maybe it was youth camp, came around, it was the same people coming forward to rededicate their lives to the Lord. You see, they'd made this commitment right in front of everyone, and for a while, might have been weeks, maybe months, they had what appeared to be spiritual renewal. They tried to do all the right things. But before long, they fell back into the same state they were in before their revival and their rededication. And what I learned from observing this over many years, not only in the lives of churches, but in my own life, what I learned was, listen, it's not about walking an aisle and shaking a preacher's hand and standing in front of people and saying, I'm giving my life back to Jesus. It's about a determined choice that I have to make that results in a lifestyle change. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 6, verse 16, don't you realize that you became the slave of whatever, become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which brings death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. It's about obedience to the Lord to live a life of a disciple. So this morning for, for somebody here, maybe just be one, maybe two, maybe a lot of us, but this morning, this might be the day when you choose to take the step of being a disciple. What does it take to be a disciple? Next point is, I've got to give control of my life away. I've got to give the control of my life away. Being a follower really is a control issue. When I'm a follower of Christ, I'm giving him control over the direction of my life. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, and I'm not going to ask your spouse to raise his or her hand, but some of us in this room are what other people might call control freaks. I know some of you who are. I know some of me who is. We want to control everything around us, and that includes me. I want to, I want to be in control of me. Can't be a disciple if I'm in control of my life. I've got to give control of my life away. I let go of the steering wheel. If I let go of the steering wheel and I give control of my life over to God, I'm kind of scared about where he might lead me. Where's he going to lead me? He might lead you through some green pastures. He might lead you to some still waters. But probably if he does, he's also going to lead you through some dark valleys. So being a disciple means that it doesn't matter where he leads me, I'm okay with it because he's in control, not me. He's the one who's brought me here. And so I'm okay with it because I know he's with me and he's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. Paul wrote this in Galatians 2.20. Let's read this out loud together. Would you read this verse with me? My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My old self has been crucified. It means it's been put to death. I've given control of my life 
over to the Lord. This must be what Jesus meant in Matthew 16, 24, when he said, if anyone, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must first turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross. That's what it means to be crucified. Take up your cross and follow me. You think about being crucified, being nailed to a cross removes all self-control, doesn't it? What can you do if you're nailed, your feet and your hands are nailed to a cross? Well, you can't do much of anything. You can holler at people, you can threaten people, you say, I'm gonna get you for that. But really you're not. You're not in control anymore. Your freedom is totally taken away and God says, you've been crucified with Christ. Live that way. Jesus says, take up your cross. But when we give, our, give control of our lives over to the Lord, we need to understand it's not a negative thing because by losing control, we win. By surrendering, we become the victors. So the question right now is for me and for you, who has control of my life today? When was the last time, just ask, you ask yourself this question, when was the last time I prayed and meant it this prayer? Lord, not my will, but yours. I've heard that before from somebody, haven't you? That was giving control over to God. And then not only did you pray it, but you obediently followed his will. Then if I'm going to be a disciple, next point, I've got to ditch the thorns that surround me. In the parable, in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus explained those thorns, that briar patch. He said, as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. I remember we had a peach tree in our backyard. You you plant the tree, and it's a couple years before you see any fruit. And I remember about the third year, man, there was peaches on that tree. And we... They got ripe and we ate those peaches and it was great. And thorns weren't a problem with that tree, by the way. But we had something worse than thorns, thorns in our yard that were the enemy of that peach tree called squirrels. And the squirrels discovered that peach tree. And the squirrels were so selfish, they would not eat the ones that fell to the ground. They had to climb up in the tree and eat the ones that were still on the branches. And they wouldn't eat the whole peach. They'd eat just enough to fill up their little tiny tummy and then they'd move to another one next time. Well, I remember, and, and, and there was another thing that destroyed our peach crop. And that was one time when it was heavy laden with peaches and we had this big storm come through. I mean, winds, 40 mile an hour winds. After the storm was over, I looked outside and my peach tree was bare. And all this premature Peaches were laying on the ground. There are things beside thorns, but we need to get rid of those things that surround us. Choked by the cares and riches and pleasures. He says that's what the thorns are of life and their fruit does not mature. Those are the things that counteract the work of God in our lives. It's like like we're in a tug of war, a spiritual tug of war. One side, on one side there's God pulling us to follow and give up the, the things that compete with our love for him. The Holy Spirit of God is saying, come on this way with me, Rick. I'll take you the right way. I'll lead you the right direction. I'll guide you if you'll be 
surrendered to me. And on the other side of the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, pulling us in the other direction. Would you believe me if I said that I have prayed with Christians and for Christians who said, I'm, I'm in this jam right now and I'm in trouble and maybe I'm about to lose my business, I'm about to lose my job, about to lose my home, and I've prayed for them that God would turn those things around in their lives and, and give them the means, whatever they need, to get them out of the pickle they're in. And they were so distressed. Oh, I need God's help. And I prayed with them and prayed for them. And you know what? God turned things around for them. They got a job or their business improved or whatever happened. And, and things got, in fact, God began to bless and prosper them. And those same people I've seen, when the financial security returned, they got caught up in the cares and the riches and pleasures of life because now they have money to go out and spend and do that they didn't have before. And it choked out their spiritual maturity. Would you believe it if, I've had, if I told you I've done that for people and with people? And the answer is, yeah, I have. I've seen it. It happens. To get out of the briar patch, if you're in it, means you have to let the Lord do the weeding in your life. And when he does the weeding, and some of you have gone out and weeded your flower beds and so forth, when he does, and those thorns, when they get in there, they're hard to get out. When he does the, it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't help just to cut them off at ground level because they'll come back up. The root's still there. You got to pull them up by the roots. When the Lord does the weeding in your life, you know what sometimes it causes? It causes pain. It causes discomfort. But the positive is that you'll be mature and you'll be free from the things that entangle your spirit. It will free you in so many ways. But if you keep telling yourself, hear me, if you keep telling yourself, well, this can't be all that bad in my life, and resist the Lord, you will never, ever mature. You'll just play act. And then get to really know Christ. If I want to be a disciple, that's the whole purpose of following. A disciple is a learner who never stops learning. And none of us will never know all there is to know of Christ in this life. None of us will get to know everything. Why? Because he's God. Um, I thought I knew Gail 37 years ago when we got married. I mean, we've been dating a couple years. We got married. I thought I knew her. But I'll tell you the truth, I know her a whole lot better now. Why? Well, not because somebody else has told me all about Gail. That's not how I've learned who she is. I've learned who she is because we spend time together. I watch and observe her. I listen to her. And you, you and I can't know Christ unless we spend time with him and in his word and in conversation, what we call prayer. But don't I already know Christ as my Savior, Rick? I hope you do. But I'm talking about a knowledge that goes beyond that. Listen to these words of someone who many would agree was the most devoted disciple ever. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, verse 10 said, I also consider everything to be loss. Everything. He was recounting who he was and what he had before he knew Jesus. And he said, I consider everything to be 
loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. To be a disciple means I value knowing him more than anything else. That was Paul's goals. What are your goals in your life? Would you bow your head with me just for a moment? What are your goals in life? This might be, today might be goal-setting Sunday for you. This might be life-changing Sunday for me. If you choose to be a true disciple, you're not choosing, please hear me, you're not choosing the broad road. You're not choosing the easy route. You're choosing the narrow road. You're not choosing a life of ease and comfort. You're choosing a life of surrender, but also a life of power. And you'll find yourself swimming upstream and going against the flow. And as we close out this series this morning, I don't know what the choice is before you this morning, but you've been listening, I hope, with your heart. I can either take the next step or I can put it in neutral or roll backwards. But this morning, the Lord calls me, calls you to follow. One more thing in your notes. If I'm going to be his disciple, I've got to put my hand on the plow and the cross on my back every day. Unlike belief for salvation, that's a one-time act of faith. Following Jesus is a daily choice that I have to make. If I don't put my hand to the plow, and I've never... I don't know that I've ever seen a farmer plow with one of those kind of horse-drawn plows, pulled plows. I don't know that I've ever, I'm not, I'm not that old, but I don't know I've seen that. But I can imagine he's got to look ahead. He's got to have a target ahead. It's kind of like cutting the grass today, you know. If you're not looking where you're going, you end up wasting a lot of time and a lot of effort. If I don't put my hand to the plow and I don't put my cross, Jesus said, take up your cross daily. If I don't do that, I've made a choice, haven't I? If I go through a day and I don't put my hand on my plow, if I go through a day and I don't carry the cross, I've made a choice. Jesus described it as as not looking back because the temptation is to look back at what we've done and the temptation is to look back maybe at what we've left. And he said we have to take up our crosses daily because sometimes that cross of dying to self is gonna get really heavy. Sometimes others, they may be in our own families, they may be the person in this world we love the most, but sometimes others, and we we call them in the psychological world, we call them enablers. You familiar with that term? Sometimes others will try to carry your cross for you. Sometimes they'll try to take it off your back. But the church, the body of Christ, we're here. We're here together to follow with you. And what we need, as Nag said church, we need Nag said church to be disciples, moving together, following Jesus. And we need to invite others to come along and join us. Let's stand together and pray.
we sang that song a moment ago, Lord, and the, the lyric said, I may be weak and I don't have to say about me, may, I know I am. My flesh fails. And Lord, that's why it's so dangerous for me to try to follow the will of my flesh because it is weak, because it does fail. And here you are, Lord, you are strong. You never fail. You are ultimately totally faithful and able to guide me and lead me if I'll just give surrender, give control to you. If I'll ditch the thorns that are in my life and leave those things behind, if I will be the man that you've called me to be, be the woman for those ladies here you've called them to be, if I'll just, Father, make the right choice to follow you. And that's what we are here to do today. Follow. To the green pastures, to the still waters, through the valleys of the shadow of death, wherever you lead me, I want to follow and put my life completely in your hands to let go of the steering wheel and give it over to you. If there's someone here today, Father, that can't yet be a disciple because they've not yet become a believer, I pray that before they leave this place, they'll come talk to me or someone here and say, what, what do I need to do to get in on this family of God? What do I need to do to have this new birth that Rick was talking about? Because we want to share that, Lord. So bless us, Lord, this week. May we take up the cross daily. If we haven't picked it up today, let's grab it now. Let's put our hand to the plow and not look back, but place, plow straight ahead as you follow us. Realizing, God, we're not on the broad road, but we're on the narrow. Not everybody's going to understand as we follow you. But I pray, Father, that we don't let their un, uh, inability to understand or even their desire to steer us off track keep us from following, that we'll be committed and surrendered to you each day. May we invite others to come along and join us. In your name I pray, amen. God bless you, have a great This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.